The Hamas terrorist attack on Israel last week has raised questions about failures in intelligence gathering. To understand more about the challenges of intelligence gathering in today's world, a Q&A episode with Amy Ziegart of the Hoover Institution. She has been studying the intelligence community for three decades and discusses their challenges in her latest book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. We also talk about the growth of the U.S. intelligence community since 9-11 and the oversight role played, often unsuccessfully, by Congress. This episode originally aired in February of 2022. Dr. Amy Ziegart, 30 years of research and writing on the intelligence community, and today's the publication date of your fifth book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. What are your goals with this new book? Well, I really have two goals, Susan. The first is I want to provide an intelligence 101. The book was aimed at my students at Stanford, and so I want to lift the veil on how the intelligence community really works because my students mostly get their education from the entertainment industry. But the second goal of the book is to do what I call intelligence 2.0. So I look at how emerging technologies like AI are transforming every part of the threat landscape and the intelligence business. Well, let me jump to the bottom line that you describe the world in which we currently live and increasingly in our future as one that's both dynamic and dangerous. Are our intelligence agencies functioning and organized in a way that's appropriate to the threats we face? Not yet is the short answer. I think we're living in a moment of reckoning akin to 9-11, where the intelligence community has to undergo a radical transformation and reimagining to deal with the threats that are driven by new technology. And so I think about these threats and, and driven by technologies in terms of five mores that they create for the intelligence community. More threats that can work across vast distances in, th in cyberspace. Uh, more speed, threats are moving at much faster paces than they were before. More data that intelligence analysts have to confront in the world, they're drowning in data. More customers that don't have security clearances that need intelligence. People like voters who need to understand foreign election interference and tech leaders. And more competitors, and I think that's probably the most challenging more which is that U.S. intelligence agencies don't dominate the collection and analysis of information like they did in the Cold War. Now anyone with an internet connection or a cell phone can produce intelligence, collect intelligence, and analyze intelligence. And those five mores are really challenging fundamentals of the intelligence community. Well, lots to unpack there, but let me start with uh, more data, the world drowning in data right now. If the job of the intelligence agencies is, as you say, to make sense of it all, with the volume that's coming out in the world today, how do they do it? Well, nobody can possibly do it all. And as, as you know, intelligence analysts are, are really looking at needles and haystacks. And now the haystacks are growing exponentially. Just to give you some idea, some estimates are the amount of data on Earth is doubling every 24 months. And so they need help with machines, machine learning algorithms, AI, uh, and they need that to augment what humans can do. So algorithms can do some things really well, like pattern recognition, identifying surface to air missile sites much faster than humans, roughly 80 times faster than a human can. But human analysts can do some things that machines can't, like better understand potential intentions of adversaries. And so the urgent need, one of the urgent needs for the intelligence community is to harness emerging technologies so that human analysts get the help they need. 
In addition to AI, quantum computing, you also talk about the enormous growth in small commercial satellites. The estimate in your book is that over the next 10 years, 8,000 of them will be launched. How does this impact data collection? Well, some estimates are even orders of magnitude higher than that. So there was a recent estimate that there may be as many as 100,000 satellites within the next decade or so. And what that means is that uh, several things, actually. One is that when you have constellations of satellites, you get what they call faster revisit rates. And what I mean by that is the satellite can get imagery of the same place many times a day so that you can get essentially a moving picture of events changing on the ground rather than just a static snapshot. So you can discern a lot more of what's going on in real time. Resolutions are getting sharper too. So you can get through commercial satellites, incredibly sharp resolutions where you can detect a type of car from space driving along a road. And what that means is that people outside the intelligence community can detect uh, what's going on in the world in ways that only superpower spy agencies used to. Most recent example of this, Susan, is last summer when open source or independent researchers discovered Chinese nuclear missile silos, hundreds of them. That was done uh, not with uh, spy agencies. It was done with people not with security clearances and using commercial satellite capabilities. And where do the continued uh, dominance of the tech giants in the United States, companies like Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Twitter, fit into the equation? Well, they're both uh, vectors uh, of harm and they're victims of harm and they're also inventors of new capabilities. So when you look at where the top talent in AI is going, two thirds of PhDs in computer science focused in AI in the United States last year, two thirds of them went to industry. So when we think about the Googles of the world, they're really capturing a lot of the talent, particularly at the top end. And what that means from a national security standpoint is that the talent of today is focused on monetizing these capabilities, not looking at 20 or 30 years over the horizon and what's the frontier of the frontier research that the country needs. So one of the concerns I have is this brain drain of talent from the academy into industry is, is directing our research toward commercialization and not innovation over the long term. You, uh, I guess we're, all of us are familiar with the threats of non-state actors and, and the terrorist uh, possibilities that they pose for the United States. But you also focus on four countries as presenting the most serious national security challenges to the United States. I wanted to drill down just a little bit on each of those. First, of, of course, is China. You call it the most serious counterintelligence threat to the United States. Talk a little bit about uh, it, China's capabilities as we know them and what you understand of its goals. So I think just to take a step back, the, the, the big four, as I call them, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea have four things in common. And I'll start with China. They are very sophisticated cyber actors, right? So we know that, that China has stolen troves of intellectual property from the United States. So they're really sophisticated in cyberspace. All four of these countries are also aggressive toward their neighbors. So we look at China uh, and, uh, and Taiwan and the South China Sea, really concerned about aggression of, uh, of our, our partner, uh, Taiwan. Uh, China is a nuclear power, modernizing uh, rapidly its nuclear arsenal, not just its conventional weapons. And so that's of concern too. 
And the fourth aspect that is very concerning about China is its intention, and it's very clear, to disrupt the international order led by the United States. Whether it's how we think about uh, rules of the free and open internet, how we think about rules of the uh, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, and so China is a revisionist power. And so you put all of those things together, cyber capabilities, nuclear capabilities, uh, territorial aggression, and an intention to disrupt the international order. And we have a very serious challenge on our hands. You uh, write that China aims to become the world leader in artificial intelligence and AI, an area of specialty for you. Uh, what would the impact of that be if they're successful? Well, one of the things that differentiates emerging technologies today like AI from nuclear technology in the Cold War is that it's inherently dual use. Uh, so AI has incredible promise in everything from medical breakthroughs uh, to uh, changing the nature of work. But AI is also uh, has great capabilities, as we can see with the Chinese government, for domestic surveillance, for autonomous weapons, uh, and for military use. So every major technology today, almost every major technology today, has both widespread commercial application and military use. And so when we think about what the competition is between the US and China today, it's an economic competition, it's a political and military competition, it's an ideological competition. And if China wins the AI race, it will have an edge in the economic arena, in the political arena, and in the military arena, which is what separates really the Cold War uh, from our competition with China now. In the Cold War, the Soviet Union uh, wasn't an economic superpower, but China is. Staying with China, you talked about how China used uh, uh, the social media in a disruptive fact, uh, fashion in the wake of COVID to uh, try to change the, the origin story and uh, put the, the finger of blame on the United States. Can you describe that example a little bit more? So China has been engaging in what they call wolf warrior diplomacy, spewing disinformation online. The Russians actually do this better than the Chinese do, but China is catching up when it comes to using our free and open internet to um, basically spread propaganda and lies about where COVID came from, right? So we, we know that, that COVID originated in China. There's a big debate about uh, how it originated, but the Chinese narrative is that actually COVID was created by the US military. Uh, and the challenge with the internet today is that false information, as we know, can go viral, even when many people know that it's false. It's hard actually to stop the spread of disinformation. And so China is, is working hard actually to manipulate the information environment outside of China and also to control the information environment inside the country with incredible censorship of its own internet uh, and more money that it spends on internal security than defense. Well, moving to the second, and that's Russia, uh, talk about its disinformation capabilities and particularly pointing to the 2016 election and what it was able to accomplish. Well, we know, Susan, Russia was an early adopter of modern cyber-enabled information warfare. Russians have been in, the Russian government has been engaged in uh, what they call active measures or information warfare long before the internet uh, came to be so uh, widely used. And the one element of Russia's election interference in 2016 that really caught intelligence agencies by surprise was Russia's use of social media. 
And so, you know, the intelligence community, many intelligence community leaders have talked about this publicly. The IC missed Russia's use of Facebook, the internet trolls uh, in St. Petersburg masquerading as Americans, sowing divisions in our democracy. And of course, the, the two you know, great example of this was uh, uh, Facebook groups created by Russians, uh, one called Heart of Texas, one called, I believe it was United Muslims. Uh, each had several hundred thousand followers on Facebook of actual Americans believing they were following a real Facebook account when in fact it was all engineered by the Kremlin. And these two uh, Kremlin-backed Facebook groups staged protests on the same day, on the same street, outside the same mosque in Houston. And so what we ended up was having uh, real Americans protesting against each other, sowing divisions, polarizing our country, uh, all engineered via Facebook from the Kremlin. You also describe Russia as being expert at hacking for profit. Tell me more. So Russia is very good at all sorts of things in cyberspace. And when we look at ransomware, for example, which many are concerned about, there's been a dramatic increase in ransomware. Many of the most sophisticated ransomware operations are coming out of Russia as well. And so, uh, and by the way, Ukraine is a test bed for many of these kinds of cyber operations. So years ago, uh, Russian hackers uh, shut off the power in Ukraine. Russia has experimented with all sorts of cyber attacks in Ukraine. Uh, and so we see a lot of uh, engineering being deployed, uh, ransomware against Ukrainian sites as well. And of course, what happens in Ukraine doesn't stay in Ukraine. That's one of the vulnerabilities of cyberspace is that the good neighborhoods and the bad neighborhoods are all connected. And so when Russia uh, engineered the NotPetya uh, attack in 2017, which was aimed malware aimed at Ukraine, it ended up getting into the wild, into the world, and shutting down shipping, shutting down uh, hospitals, and causing billions of dollars of damage worldwide. Well, uh, I was uh, sent an email a couple of days ago from a nonprofit organization warning of the increased threat of Russian hacking because of the situation on the Ukrainian border. How does the United States intelligence community aid private companies uh, in preventing or being aware of these kinds of attacks? It's such a great question, Susan. And the answer is it's really evolving. One of the things we've seen in the Biden administration is a dramatic increase in the capabilities and the organization of the US government to work more closely with the private sector. So what we're seeing now, if you look at Twitter, is public service announcements from intelligence agencies, from the Department of Homeland Security, sometimes from the National Security Agency, warning companies about uh, uh, vulnerabilities in their, um, in their software. We're also seeing, I think the Biden administration has been very clear about the need to work much more closely with companies, uh, as they say, left of boom, so before something happens and after something happens. And there have been public reports about uh, work with Microsoft, for example, uh, to patch uh, vulnerabilities uh, much more quickly. And that, of course, uh, helps a number of small and medium-sized businesses and everyday Americans down the road when these large companies work better together with the government to secure their vulnerabilities in their software. Staying with Ukraine for just a moment, uh, how is it an example of the ways in which the intelligence community is able to use open source information to assess the situation? 
Well, one of the most interesting examples of open source comes from uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine the last time in 2014. It turns out that the best information about Russian troop movements didn't come from secrets, it came from selfies. So Russian soldiers took pictures of themselves with Ukrainian highway signs in the background that were timestamped and they posted those pictures on social media for their family and friends out there for everybody to see. And so this has been going on for some time now. Uh, and so you can see also there are you know, lots of satellite, uh, it, there's a lot of satellite imagery about Russian troop movements in Ukraine now. So open source has really come of age in terms of revealing a lot of what's going on uh, outside of clandestine intelligence collection capabilities. Uh, let's move on. We've got two more of the major actors of concern to national security. The next one is Iran. So Iran was an early cyber bad actor, uh, turning uh, 30,000 Saudi Arabian computers into bricks with a, with a virus that it sent years ago. Uh, and again, as I, as I mentioned, Iran has, you know, aspires to have nuclear capabilities, has sophisticated cyber capabilities, uh, has territorial aggression in the region, uh, and seeks to disrupt the international order, uh, most pointedly with its clandestine nuclear weapons program. So Iran's been a concern for 30 years. Uh, this is nothing new, but their capabilities are pretty sophisticated, and that's a real concern. Well, we've also seen the United States working with Israelis to d disrupt their intentions. So can you talk about the counterattacks that uh, we've demonstrated we've been able to do? Yeah, I mean, I think you see there's a lot of activity in cyberspace with respect to the Israelis in Iran. As you know, what's what's been publicly reported, uh, the, the Stuxnet uh, worm that the U.S. and Israel reportedly collaborated on to uh, destroy uh, Iranian centrifuges, uh, which comes out, it looks like something out of Mission Impossible, it's very sophisticated malware, uh, you know, orders of magnitude more sophisticated than most malware that you see. Uh, and so what we're seeing is, short of war, a lot more activity in the gray zone, a lot more activity that is covert, a lot more activity that is done through cyberspace to try to impede uh, Iran's quest for the bomb, which would be obviously destabilizing, not just for the region and not just for Israel, but for the world. So a lot more collaboration in cyberspace uh, to try to stop Iran uh, from getting the bomb. In your description of North Korea, North Korea, one thing that really caught my attention is that they have been particularly aggressive in cryptocurrency to help finance their nuclear ambitions. People that have uh, been thinking about investing in cryptocurrency would be particularly interested in your description, I think. So North Korea loves to steal things. Uh, North Korea, as you know, doesn't have much of an economy at all. Uh, it's one of the poorest countries on earth. It's why uh, so many folks are concerned about North Korea's willingness to sell its nuclear technology, its know-how and its capabilities. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that North Korea is very interested and active and successful at stealing cryptocurrency and using cryptocurrency. Um, so this is, you know, one of the one of the downsides of having a currency that is anonymous uh, is that it's a great way for bad guys to do bad things and try to get away with it. So North Korea poses a number of challenges for the United States. And I think in cyber, what's really striking about the North Korean threat is it's asymmetric. Right. So North Korea is one of the least digitally connected countries in the world. Fewer than 10% of its people even have a cell phone. 
And so when North Korea wages a cyber attack on other countries like the United States, like the Sony Pictures hack that happened several years ago, if we respond in kind in cyberspace, not much happens, right? When North Korea's internet went down shortly after the Sony hack, nothing really happened because North Korea, North Korea literally had 28 websites in the country. So advanced industrial economies, capitalist democratic countries like the United States are far more vulnerable in cyberspace than countries like North Korea. And that's new in the, you know, until now in the, in the physical world, countries that were the most powerful were the most secure, but in cyberspace were simultaneously powerful and vulnerable. How useful has the open source information been in assessing the success of North Korea's nuclear ambitions? You know, open source has been surprisingly successful at identifying what North Korea is doing. And that that should come as a surprise because North Korea is uh, very secretive. It's a hard intelligence target. Uh, it's very hard to understand what's going on. But with remote sensing or satellite capabilities, uh, open source uh, detectives like my colleagues here at Stanford University have identified the locations of tests. Uh, they've identified uh, the capabilities of North Korea. They've identified uh, various aspects of its uh, missile program. And so it may come as a surprise to many people how much has uh, been made uh, available through very clever detective work using openly available sources. As you said, one of the goals in writing the book was to give your students and readers a primer on how we're structured currently uh, in the IC, as you call it, the intelligence community. Uh, the current structure grew out of 9-11 reforms. One of the most significant of those was to create the, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence as a coordinating uh, role amongst the agencies. You describe in the book how interagency lobbying and congressional lobbying watered down this role. What did we end up with? Well, we ended up with a coordinator that lacked two major levers of power that coordinators really need, control over budgets and control over people. And when that law was created, was, was passed in 2004, there was a very deliberate effort to water down the powers of the Director of National Intelligence. By the way, it was a replay of the creation of the CIA back in 1947 where existing intelligence agencies didn't want any agency calling itself central with control over their budgets, their people, their mission. And so we see the same political dynamics at work after 9-11, where existing agencies in the US intelligence community, and there are now 18 of them, didn't want to cede that much control to another organization called the Director of National Intelligence. Now that said, the DNI has actually done a very good job over time at making the most of the authorities that that office has. So it has overall been an improvement, but there's a long way to go with coordination in the intelligence community. And as I tell my students, imagine trying to decide where to go, uh, what movie to see when there are only two of you, that seems pretty easy. But now imagine there are 18 of you and you have to coordinate what you're going to do. Coordination is inevitably harder when you have more agencies to coordinate and it gets exponentially more challenging the more agencies you add. Do all 18 of the agencies report up through the DNI? Well, that's an excellent question. Yes and no, right? So uh, the FBI is in the Department of Justice, so uh, has a reporting relationship there. 
uh, organizations, several intelligence agencies are within the Department of Defense. So they, they also report to the Secretary of Defense. So who's your boss depends on the context. Uh, it depends on uh, on the issues of the, on the issues that you're dealing with, uh, and uh, theoretically, the DNI is in charge of uh, of all the intelligence community. But there's more uh, responsibility in the lap of the DNI than there is authority in the hands of the DNI. And how does the National Security Council fit in? So the National Security Council fits in because the National Security Council, as you know, really uh, serves at the pleasure of the president. And it's a policy-oriented body. And I think one of the things that, that my students and many people don't realize is that intelligence is not designed to make policy. Intelligence is an input to policy. Intelligence isn't supposed to have a dog in the policy fight. And so the NSC staff is where the, the policy and intelligence come together. But intelligence officials should not be in the position of making policy. Uh, and if they are, then the intelligence they provide becomes suspect because it could be seen as biased or slanted toward a particular policy option. How much uh, information and how makes it to the president's desk? Again, I think it depends on the issue and it depends on the president and it depends on the day. So there is the president's daily brief. So there is a product the president uh, is supposed to read daily. Whether presidents actually read the PDB depends uh, on the president. But presidents also get information through oral briefings and increasingly today through their phones and through all sorts of other uh, social media accounts. And so there's a lot of competition for attention and information that the president receives. So in the world of Twitter, for example, the president can get real-time events uh, on Twitter uh, that may move much faster than what the intelligence community can do. And I'll share with you uh, just a, a personal uh, anecdote. When uh, a few years ago, I went to Strategic Command, uh, the command in charge of our nuclear weapons. And I went in the underground bunker that is you know, the ground central for dealing with how we would respond uh, if we were under attack. And I asked at Strategic Command, do you have Twitter in the uh, battle deck? underground and they said actually we do so in the giant screens underground at strategic command there is a twitter feed now right alongside that classified intelligence feed so that's just a very um, powerful reminder that the information world is different today than it was 20 years ago and the intelligence community is competing not only in terms of content, but in terms of speed with a number of other sources for policymaker attention. When a private citizen like you comes into a secured space like that, uh, how much are you allowed to see? I'm not allowed to see anything if I'm not cleared. And, it, and as I say in the book, sometimes you can feel a little bit like a criminal when you walk into a, a secured facility and you're not cleared because the, sometimes the lights flash. And, and that's all because you know it's for good reason, uh, because people who aren't cleared don't have a need to know about the classified information. So uh, so I'm not allowed to see anything unless I'm cleared. I have a clearance uh, that allows me to see some things, but, uh, but that, again, is very context-specific. Uh, some of the major agencies among the 18, the CIA, one significant evolution in the post-9-11 reorganizations that you described was a blurring of the lines between the military and the CIA perhaps best symbolized when General David Petraeus became the CIA director and Leon Panetta, CIA director, moved to be defense secretary. 
Um, would you talk about the significance of that blurring of the lines between the military and the CIA, what it means for the, how the organization functions and for our security? Yeah, so after 9-11, one of the improvements in intelligence was much tighter integration between the CIA and what the military was doing. So tight coordination about counterterrorism targeting, for example. So drone strikes are sometimes carried out by the military. They're sometimes carried out by the Central Intelligence Agency. They're sometimes carried out by the two of them together. Now, there have been some real benefits to this tight integration on the battlefield but there's a real downside to that integration as well. And as I talk about in the book, there's an opportunity cost. The CIA can't do everything. The CIA's primary mission has always been preventing strategic surprise. And by that, I mean preventing another Pearl Harbor or 9-11, a major attack or a major development that catches the nation by surprise. The agency's primary mission is not supporting warfighters in the battlefield. And so one of the costs of this tight integration between the CIA and the military is that there's less capability, less ability for the CIA to fulfill its primary mission, which is looking over the horizon at threats before they materialize. And as I write in the book, um, you know, the military and the CIA seem like they do the same kinds of things today, and that's bad. The military is trained to be hunters. CIA officers are trained to be gatherers, big difference. The military is trained to use violence. The CIA is trained to use information. And in a world where we can't really tell those two missions apart, it's a world where the CIA is not spending enough time on its primary mission. And that I think is one of the legacies of 20 years of fighting the global war on terror. Upside is we're, we've gotten a lot better at fighting the global war on terror. Downside is the world has changed and we need the CIA to do what the CIA's unique mission is. And that's preventing strategic surprise. How has the FBI's responsibilities changed post 9-11? Well, the FBI theoretically had a counterterrorism mission before 9-11. It just didn't do that mission very well. One of the things I found in a book I wrote about 9-11, I spent five years looking at why the CIA and the FBI failed to prevent 9-11. And one of the incredible documents I found in researching that book was in 1998, three years before 9-11, the FBI published a strategic plan. And that plan saw the threat landscape very clearly. It said terrorism is a top priority and we need to transform ourselves and become a domestic intelligence agency. So it was an incredible document. And that document failed over the next three years to get the changes that it laid out. And I interviewed a number of people inside the Bureau and they were heartbroken over the Bureau's failure to do what it knew it needed to do. So after 9-11, it became clear that the FBI had failed. I'll give you a statistic that sort of sends this point home. The FBI declares terrorism its number one priority, yet on 9-11, only 6% of FBI personnel were working on counterterrorism issues, 6%. Now that's gotten better since 9-11. Analysis in the FBI has gotten better since 9-11, but it is still not a uh, first-rate analytic organization because special agents who carry the guns and the badges 
uh, have priority in the agency. An analyst cannot lead an FBI office in the United States, according to FBI rules, which means analysts are always second-class citizens. And if analysts are always second-class citizens, analysis is always going to get shortchanged. Does the FBI have the kinds of recruiting problems that you referenced earlier? You know, I don't know the details about who the FBI is recruiting and how, but I think if you're an aspiring analyst and you want to work at a place that values what you do, it's hard to make the case that the best, uh, the best part of the intelligence community to employ you is the FBI. You know, there's a joke in the FBI. I think jokes are very revealing about organizational culture. And there's a joke in the FBI that there are only two kinds of people in the bureau, special agents and furniture. Right? That tells you a lot about uh, the how valued analysts are inside the bureau. Uh, I don't want to, of course, spend time on all 18, but would you speak to a bit of the mission of the, NAS the NSA? And when was it organized and what does it do today? So NSA is a really interesting uh, intelligence agency. The, the acronym NSA used to stand, of course, for no such agency because it was so secretive, nobody would even talk about it. Uh, and NSA was created in 1952 uh, and its mission has several missions, but its primary mission is code breaking and code making. So uh, penetrating encrypted uh, communications of uh, foreigners abroad uh, and protecting our own information here in the United States. Uh, the NSA conducts what is called signals intelligence. So uh, intercepting uh, foreign, uh, foreign intelligence like emails and telephone calls. And I emphasize the word foreign. The FBI, the, the, excuse me, the, the National Security Agency trains its collection abroad. I think after 9-11, there was a lot of concern that the NSA was listening to our phone calls with grandma through these very controversial collection programs. And in fact, that was not the case. So the NSA's very controversial uh, Section 215 program about metadata, uh, for telephone metadata, very controversial. We can talk about that for understandable reasons. But the NSA was not listening to the content of those phone calls. And I think that's an important distinction. You know, we have a clip, um, and I want to jump to that, from 2013. And it's a specific exchange you reference in the book in a Senate hearing with Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat of Oregon, and then DNI Director James Clapper about NSA spying, March 12, 2013. Let's listen to this exchange. Last summer, the NSA director was at a conference, and he was asked a question about the NSA surveillance of Americans. He replied, and I quote here, the story that we have millions or hundreds of millions of dossiers on people is completely false. If you could give me a yes or no answer to the question, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. There are cases where they could in inadvertently, perhaps, uh, collect, but not, not wittingly. That exchange blew up. Can you tell me why? It blew up because technically the answer that Director Clapper gave was wrong. Uh, the NSA did have records of millions of Americans, but the records were like your phone record, right? So not the content of your calls, but the number you called and the time that you called and the duration of the call. 
And that was incredibly important, that, that moment, because Senator Wyden believed that Director Clapper had lied to him. Director Clapper believed that he was trapped in an open hearing. He couldn't reveal the classified program, highly classified program. So he was in a conundrum. How was he supposed to answer the question in an unclassified open hearing in a truthful way? There was no way to get around it. But taking a step back, the broader problem with the NSA and these collection programs was that they kept them too secret for too long. And former NSA director Michael Hayden has written about this as a political mistake. After 9-11, the NSA should have been much more forthcoming about what it needed to do and what it and the authorities that it thought it should use um, to uh, close the collection scenes that we know were, were problematic before 9-11. And had the NSA been more forthcoming, uh, Congress and the American people would have given it much greater support. But that clip that you showed fed into the narrative that the NSA in particular was deceptive and lying to the American people. And that really hurt, I think, the trust in the U.S. intelligence community. I want to go back in time because readers of your book will get the history of the intelligence services. And I, we have a, a quote from Harry Truman on the creation of the CIA. You referenced it earlier. Uh, this is uh, from the Truman Collection. and. Uh, he talks about what he was trying to achieve in the creation of CIA and its central nature. Let's listen. I set up the original Central Intelligence Agency, which coordinated all the intelligence services uh, that were then in the government for the benefit of the president. They used to make those reports to the president in piles of papers like that. And he didn't have time to go through them. And if he did, he didn't have time to coordinate them. So. I had all those intelligence reports, some of them were just duplicates of what the others had already told, so arranged that the president, every morning on his desk, would have a report of the intelligence as it affected the government of the United States. He could go over it in 15 minutes, and he could then veto whatever was necessary to be vetoed intelligently. Amy Zegart, you write that the intelligence community has undergone a number of reorganizations since that original founding, and the organizations uh, have followed three general patterns, halting development, then organizational fragmentation, and democratic tensions. Can you speak to these, the first 20 years of the CIA operations and where it went from Harry Truman's description of a central agency to what happened next? Well, I love that audio of Harry Truman talking about how he envisioned the CIA. And what really stands out is that he really viewed it as really a collection and coordination outfit. And of course that quickly changed. So the CIA was never intended to get into the covert action business, but it already did by 19, I think the 1947, 48, uh, under uh, President Truman. And so what happened was once the CIA was created, there was vague statutory language authorizing the agency to perform uh, whatever functions for, in service of the national security that the president may direct, something to that effect. And so uh, the president used the tool that he had, uh, which started off with covert uh, uh, election support uh, in the Italian elections to prevent a communist uh, victory there. And so what we know about the CIA is that it quickly ballooned into uh, an organization that uh, collected its own intelligence through human sources and engaged in covert action. 
And its ability to do that and its oversight, the oversight of the CIA's covert action program has changed pretty significantly over time. Uh, much more oversight today than there was in the 1940s when Truman was experimenting uh, with these kinds of capabilities. The major uh organizational change happened in the 1970s with the Church Committee and the United States Congress uh, ushering in the next phase of U.S. intelligence. In that process, you write about uh, the congressional oversight and permanent congressional oversight was established. This being C-SPAN, I'd like to hear more about your views of how well congressional oversight of the intelligence process works. So I'd say two things. Number one is after 1970s, oversight worked better than before the 1970s. So before the church committee that you mentioned, oversight really was a couple of hours a year, a few members of Congress not really wanting to ask questions and not really wanting to hear the answers. I'm not even exaggerating. It was really, I call it a, a period of undersight. After news reports of intelligence abuses and excesses, we have the, the church committee, uh, one of its signature recommendations was the creation of permanent intelligence oversight committees in the House and Senate. So that's a, better than it was before. But oversight overall has always been problematic. It's always been weak. And no matter who's in power, no matter which party has the majority control of the House or Senate, no matter which president is in office, and the reasons have to do with incentives and institutions. This being C-SPAN, I'm sure your, um, your audience will appreciate uh, the, the wonky path I'm gonna go down about incentives and institutions. Briefly put, members of Congress don't oversee the intelligence community very well, typically, because voters don't reward them for it. There are more powdered milk experts in Congress today than intelligence experts or people who have worked in an intelligence agency before. So members of Congress have to learn the intelligence business on the job, and that takes time. Nobody votes for their member of Congress based on the nitty gritty aspects of how well they oversee the US intelligence community. So any amount of time that a member of Congress devotes to intelligence is an act of patriotism that is usually not rewarded by voters. And so then Congress also has developed uh, institutional mechanisms that prevent members of Congress from getting better at intelligence oversight. So today in the House, there are still term limits for members serving on the House Intelligence Committee. Now, originally those term limits were designed to prevent members of the committee from getting too cozy with intelligence agencies, wanted to have a bit of distance. But what that's done over time is impede the development of expertise. So just when a member of the House committee has learned all the acronyms of the 18 agencies of the intelligence community, they're required to leave the intelligence committee and take another committee assignment instead. So the House has tied its own hands at developing, developing expertise in intelligence for a very long time. You also describe as a, a structural institutional issue, and this is not uncommon in Congress, that the power of the purse and otherwise budgeting for the intelligence community is separated from the oversight. Is that a structural change that uh, you would recommend addressing? It is, and I'm not the only one. John McCain wanted to address it. Many others, many other members of Congress have argued that this bifurcation between uh, authorizers, so people on the intelligence committees, and appropriators, the people who actually approve the budgets, that division is really hurting the intelligence community. And uh, as one former intelligence official told me, it's like the two parent theory. If mom says, no, you go to dad. 
So what happens is if something gets, if experts in the, or you know, relative experts in the intelligence committee say, well, we shouldn't have this program, uh, it's easy to circumvent them and go right to the appropriators and get that money put back in the budget. Uh, so this bifurcated system of authorizers and appropriators is really problematic from an intelligence perspective. In the eyes of Congress, too, another issue that you write about is the asymmetric information between the president, the executive branch, and uh, the members of Congress who serve on the Intelligence Committee. How has Congress tried to address that asymmetric situation? So bureaucracies in the executive branch always have more information than the members of Congress that oversee them. But in intelligence, it's really extreme because of classification, right? There's an old joke uh, that Bill Casey, the CIA director in the 80s, wouldn't tell you your coat was on fire unless you asked him specifically. So that's always a problem uh, in intelligence. And so what the committees have tried to do over time is they bolstered their staff, they've tried to develop more trusted working relationships with the executive branch, uh, but that's always a challenge when you're talking about uh, the intelligence community. The, the intelligence agencies always have more information than the overseers in charge of making sure they're effective. Uh, and that, I think, underscores the need for having folks uh, come in the door with greater expertise in intelligence and rewarding them for taking the time to hone that expertise, uh, which voters don't do. You um, argue that the American public needs to have a better understanding of the function of the intelligence community in keeping the country safe. But in the ensuing years since 9-11, there have been a number of intelligence failures and controversies that have shaken the public confidence. Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction, the CIA use of black sites. We talked about the NSA monitoring of, uh, of data. Uh, how um, how do you reconcile these public confidence issues uh, with the functioning of the intelligence agencies? Well, secret agencies operating in a, in a democracy have to have the trust of the people. They can't do their job if the American people don't believe in them, don't trust at least that they're trying their best and their objective. Intelligence agencies are going to fail, right? It's a hard business. Uh, and if they're getting 100% right, they're not asking the hard enough questions, right? So I think it's important for people to understand that trust in the agencies doesn't mean trust that they'll always uh, get it right. Uh, we have a hard enough time predicting who's gonna win uh, the Super Bowl. And now imagine you're trying to predict what Xi Jinping is going to do. So I think that's an important uh, distinction. But I think it's really important that the American people understand what these agencies do and have a reservoir of trust about what they do. And that trust comes from being more forthcoming on the side of the intelligence community about who they are and what they do, what their mission is, when they fail, being reflective about that failure. It's not to reveal everything because we need classification to protect our national security, but it is about being more forthcoming so that they can garner the trust of the American people. One other thing that happened uh, during the Trump administration is the seeming politicization of the national security apparatus. And the American public saw for the first time former intelligence chiefs turning into pundits and commenting on the political situation. What has that done, do you think, for Americans' trust in the agencies? 
I understand why formers in the intelligence community felt so strongly they wanted to come forward and defend the agencies they had devoted their lives to serving, and they serve every president. But I am concerned that there is a growing view that intelligence is just politics. And I think President Trump really exacerbated that view, that intelligence was like the marketing department, sort of trying to sell things to the American people in the world, trying to, trying to you know, market something that may or may not be true. And that hurts intelligence. Intelligence has to be seen and is rightly seen as apolitical, objective, nonpartisan, serving whoever is occupying the Oval Office. And so when President Trump uh, politicized intelligence, when he um, criticized intelligence in a very personal way, uh, when he denigrated intelligence, when he cherry-picked intelligence, oh, and by the way, when he revealed extremely valuable classified intelligence casually in a way that really hurt our allied relations, uh, those are very damaging actions. And so the, the counter, the, sort of the, the effect of those actions was a reaction by intelligence former officials, some of which became very personal and very political. And overall, that can really hurt the trust and the apolitical mission of the intelligence community. So how do you think the agencies recover from this? I think they recover by getting back to basics. And I think what we've seen with uh, DNI Haynes and Director Burns is a real focus on getting back to basics, on doing the mission they're supposed to do, uh, and staying out of those political fights as they should do. And I think they've done a tremendous job at helping the intelligence community recover. So we have about nine minutes left in our conversation. We've, you've given us some of the history. You've outlined the current organization and the evolving uh, threats to national security. I wanted to spend our last few minutes in talking about going forward. So uh, first of all, in the terms of public perception of what the intelligence function is in society, you talk about how both policymakers and the public are overly influenced by Hollywood depictions of spycraft. How does that challenge our, uh, the effectiveness of the organizations? Well, you know, I started off writing this book because I did a survey of my students in a class, almost on a lark, asking them what they thought about U.S. intelligence agencies and how much they watched spy-themed entertainment. And I found statistically significant correlations between those who said they frequently or always watch spy-themed entertainment and the whole host of views about counterterrorism, aggressive uh, intelligence tactics. And so what I learned in, in sort of pulling that thread is that spy-themed entertainment had become adult education. Now, why should we care about this? Well, I found really two, two things. One is public opinion is absolutely influenced by spy-themed entertainment, and that has created fertile ground for myth and conspiracy theories to grow. So in Hollywood and on television, right, uh, torture always works. That's what we saw on 24, for example. Um, spy agencies are running rogue with no oversight whatsoever. And they can they have high tech, amazing gizmos that can watch our every move, right, where they see someone walking out of the bus terminal and they zero in on that person and then uh, they can send in the asset to get that person. Those three myths, right, that um, torture always works, uh, that the intelligence agencies have incredible capabilities to watch your every move uh, and that they're running rogue, they are not true. And so the, the more the public believes that, 
the less they actually support and understand what the intelligence community is doing. So there's a public opinion component to this problem. And I've done national polls that reveal that there really are strong correlations between spy-themed entertainment viewing and views of, of intelligence. But there's a second part of this problem, which is that we all watch spy-themed entertainment, including policymakers. And so I found that spy-themed entertainment has influenced actual intelligence policy as well. It's influenced policy in terms of what interrogation techniques a lieutenant colonel uh, thought about using and decided to use at Guantanamo Bay. It's affected questions that the Senate Intelligence Committee asked uh, nominee for CIA Director Leon Panetta in his confirmation hearings in 2009. It's affected how Supreme Court justices said they would rule about various intelligence programs or uh, situations based on television plot lines, which are not realistic. So I think spy-themed entertainment, and I like spy-themed entertainment as much as the next person, but it has real consequences for both public opinion and intelligence policy. Two counters to that, which you wrote, write about, is uh, more university-level research and teaching about intelligence. Why isn't there more? Well, I beat up on my own discipline and my, and my own field in the book as well. Um, I found that um, there are more courses taught by the top 25 universities in the U.S. on the history of rock and roll than on U.S. intelligence. And I tell my students that means they're more likely to learn about U2 the band rather than U2 the spy plane. I've looked at the top journals in political science over 15 years and found they published nearly 3,000 articles on topics and only five of those 3,000 articles were related to intelligence. So my field has not done a very good job at uh, devoting a lot of attention to studying critical intelligence issues. And there are a number of reasons why that is. But one of the big ones for academics is data, right? In publish or perish world, uh, you have to have data uh, to write books and articles uh, in academics. And if you're a, a Congress expert, there's a lot of data. It's all publicly available, roll call votes, legislation, histories. But if you're an academic that wants to understand the intelligence community, you don't even have a phone directory. You can't even look at the budget and you have to file Freedom of Information Act requests and pour through declassified documents when they become available. So there are real barriers for academics to study intelligence, uh, career barriers for them to do it. And that's one of the big reasons why we don't see more work. So you're calling upon the agencies themselves to be more transparent. I think it would help everybody. It behooves the intelligence community to have outsiders analyzing what they do and analyzing what reforms could improve their performance. It helps uh, educate the next generation of Americans about this community and what it does. It helps educate the American people about what they do. I'm not saying give over the family jewels and everything that the intelligence community is doing. I understand the need to classify a great deal, but a lot more could be put in the public domain. And I think it would help both our understanding of intelligence and the performance of intelligence. Another counter would seem to be effective national reporting on the work of the intelligence agencies. What, uh, what are you seeing when you look at how much and the quality of reporting that's done on the intelligence community? You mean by the media, Susan? Yes. I think what we've seen is um, real heroic efforts. Uh, I'm always amazed by what the press has been able to uh, uncover about the intelligence community. And I know that's a contact sport, 
when the press is reporting about things that are secret and the intelligence community believes that there could be threats to the national security by revealing those secrets. But what we've seen over the past 20, 30 years is that contact sport is worked out among you know, mainstream press and the government. And over time, uh, we've seen the benefits of that reporting. Um, and so I think, you know, First Amendment rights are really important. Um, I, you know, I commend the press for doing what they're doing. At one point in writing one of my books, I had to hire a First Amendment lawyer uh, because I was so concerned about uh, my ability to publish what I believe was important. And um, I'm really grateful uh, that I would that I had one. Uh, so I think the press is doing uh, a heroic job and it's a really important part of our democratic system. And finally, and this is a big question with only about two minutes left, you argue that we need a 19th intelligence agency. What would it look like? So I know we've talked about how coordination is so hard when you have so many agencies. Why a 19th agency? I think open source intelligence or publicly available information is the name of the game in the future of intelligence. Secrets still matter, but nowhere near like they used to. And whoever can harness all of this data that is around the world faster and better is going to secure advantage. But secret agencies will always favor secrets. For an open source, for open source intelligence to get the resources and intention that it needs, it has to have its own agency. And an open source intelligence agency is also better positioned to harness emerging technologies to explore and examine how best to analyze open source intelligence. So we could experiment more in the unclassified world. And an open source agency could also harness emerging talent. So this is not just about technology, intelligence is about people. And we need to have agencies that are attracting the best and brightest engineers, not just the best and brightest uh, Mandarin speakers and country experts. And so I think for all those reasons, an open source intelligence agency would be a vital intelligence reform. All while ensuring civil liberties? All while ensuring civil liberties. There have to be guardrails uh, about what our intelligence agencies collect and how they collect it. And that's challenging. But I also know that the NSA knows a lot less about me than Google does and has a lot more oversight over what it can do in terms of gathering information and data on American citizens than tech companies do today. There's lots more in the book, but our time is done. The book, uh, the fifth by Dr. Amy Zegard is Spies, Lies and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. Thanks for spending an hour with me. Thanks so much, Susan. Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast on our C-SPAN Now app. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.